It's good to worship with you this morning and sing of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is indeed who we're looking at in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. I want to continue with the passage we started last week, Ephesians 4, uh, 4 through 6. Last week was the foundation of unity, part 1, and today we continue in that passage, the foundation of unity, part 2. Let me just read, starting in um, Ephesians 4, 1, all the way through 6. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What we see here is a short doctrinal statement. Paul's listing seven doctrines, and he's just giving a short statement of what all Christians at that time believed. Many Christians early on began to turn away from some of these truths. Many false teachers arose. And so the church found a need to write some theological statements, some doctrinal statements, because they realized that Scripture could be twisted, that people could focus on certain parts of Scripture and not others. And Christ's deity was challenged. And Christ's humanity was challenged. And so by the second century, we already have a confession of faith called the Apostles' Creed. The Apostles' Creed was just a short summary of what every Christian believed. Then later, you had the Nicene Creed. And then later, the Creed of Constantinople and the Creed of Chalcedon. And even up through today, we have statements of faith, confessions of faith. They're not equal to Scripture. They were never meant to be equal to Scripture. Our doctrinal statement here is not equal to the Word of God. But what it is, is it takes the whole Bible and it talks about specific categories of doctrine and lets you know, as a person coming to our church, what we believe. Well, these statements set forth a concise manner, all the ones that have been put out since the second century, a, a concise manner, the cornerstone truths of Christianity. The early church recognized that unity is founded around the truth of Scripture. We can't be unified in error. We can't be, and, and they couldn't be back then. Well, much like those doctrinal statements, Paul lists one here, and these are the essentials, the seven doctrines that unify the church. All true born-again Christians should be unified in these things. You can't say, I subscribe to six of them, and I'll leave the seventh one off. Or there's one that I don't really like here, and I'll cut that one out. Now, these are the things that unify Christians. If you run across a Christian who denies one of these, then they're probably not a Christian. If you correct them and show them and teach them, and they still adamantly deny one of these, they're probably not a Christian. They're probably part of some cult, but they're certainly not someone you want to be unified with if they deny one of the essentials of the faith. Well, last week we looked at the first three in verse 4. Verse 4 has the first three, one body. One body is the true and genuine church. There are many people professing, but I think either in error or false. There are many people out there in denominations who deny a true and genuine church worldwide. They think their church is the only true church, or their denomination is the only true denomination. 
So we talked last week about the one body and the one body of Christ, the church that, that unites us and the local church, how that's a representation of the universal church. We also looked at one spirit and we spent some time looking at the person of the Holy Spirit. And then we looked at the work that the Holy Spirit does in a believer at the moment of salvation and also ongoing throughout the Christian life. And then lastly, we looked at the one hope of your calling. That common destination that we all share. We should be unified because we're all going to the same place. We're all going to spend eternity with God. And if you have a problem with the believers here, well, spending eternity with them is really going to be difficult. We're all going to the same place, so we ought to be unified. We have one hope, a certainty that Christ is coming back and that we'll receive a resurrected body and that we'll spend forever and ever with him and all the saints who are going to be with him, all the believers. Well, today we look at the next three in the list, and then next week uh, we'll look at the Father. But today we're looking at really the Son and, and what he does. Of course, all three, all three persons of the Trinity are operating in our salvation and operating in the world. But Paul wants to sort of put these one per verse here. Verse four is the Holy Spirit, how he focuses on bringing us together into one body and seals us for the future hope. Verse 5, we look at the one Lord, the one faith that calls us to the Lord, and the one baptism that identifies us with the Lord. So let's look first of all, number one, at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Last week we looked at the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and I talked about how that had been challenged, that people are very confused on the Holy Spirit, and others just deny the fact that the Holy Spirit is God. Well, we need to talk about the Lord Jesus Christ and a whole year's worth of sermons. Decades of sermons could be preached on the Spirit and on Jesus Christ the Lord and on the Father. I need to try to summarize it, though, as just one of the three points we'll be looking at today. So we're going to go pretty quick through the person of Christ and even quicker, I think, through the work. But we will come back around to the work of Christ in the next point. The person of Christ. Who is Jesus? That's what Christianity is all about. Who is Jesus? If we get that wrong, then we can't be saved. If we deny some of the essential truths about Jesus in Scripture, you can't be saved. You actually have to believe in the Jesus that comes to us through the Bible. The Jesus revealed to us in Scripture. The Jesus that people spoke of in the Old Testament that was to come, the Messiah. And the one revealed to us in the New Testament. And it says he will come back. There are many people who believe in a Jesus, but it is not the Jesus that matches up with Scripture. And that's sad. It's a Jesus of their own mind. It's a Jesus of their own creation. So we need to study and look at who is Jesus? Who is this one Lord? It's one thing for Paul to say one Lord, and those Ephesians got to hear from Paul for three years, and they knew of these things. I need to make sure we as a church know something about the one Lord. Well, first, let's look at his deity. Jesus Christ is truly God. The Lord Jesus here, that's who he's talking about, not the Lord God the Father. That's who we were singing about. But it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is fully and truly God. You have to start with that, that he is God. That he always has been. That he was God when he came to the earth. And that he always will be. He is the Son of God right now, sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is the second person of the Trinity. Paul's just going down the list here. 
He starts with the Spirit, then goes to the Son, then goes to the Father. That's backwards than we often say. We, we sang just now, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Paul has a reason for it. He's starting with the church and then working outward. But Christ is God. That's what it means to call him Lord. Sometimes people will say Lord. We, we use that in English as Sir. But Lord in the Bible points back to God. The God of the Old Testament. The God of Scripture. He was called Yahweh in Hebrew. In the Old Testament, God is called Yahweh. That's a personal name for the covenant God. If you knew God in the Old Testament, if you knew God as Savior, you referred to Him as Yahweh in Hebrew. Now, pagans just said there's a God. There's just a God up there. There's a general God. But Abraham and his descendants called Him by a personal name, Yahweh. A name that was given to Moses. Exodus 3.14 This name Yahweh is is related to the verb, I am, I exist. So in Exodus 3.14, Moses says, who are you? What is your name? And God replies, I am who I am. That's his name. I am who I am. And that verb now gets put into a name, Yahweh. And God said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, when you go tell them who this God is speaking to you out of the burning bush, tell them, I am has sent you. God's name. I am. He he exists. He always exists. He always has existed. Well, that was the Hebrew name for God. And Jesus in John 8, verse 58 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. He doesn't say I was. He doesn't put it in the past tense. He says I am. And he's pointing back to this idea in Exodus. That the God of Scripture, the God who has spoken to Abraham and all his descendants, is the God called I Am, Yahweh. And Jesus, who's come in the flesh, the Son of God, is that God. He is truly God. Now, when the Bible gets translated from Hebrew into Greek, just a little bit before the New Testament time, the Old Testament gets translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. That's just the name of the Greek Bible around 200 B.C. And when they took the name Yahweh, a tradition had developed that you didn't pronounce the Lord's name. You didn't pronounce God's name. You didn't say Yahweh out loud. And so instead of trying to figure out how to say that in Greek, they just used the word Lord, kurios. Kurios in Greek means Lord. And they said, we'll just put Lord there instead of anything close to Yahweh. And now in our English translations, that tradition continued. And so you'll see in some translations, Lord in all caps. Instead of the regular Lord, you'll see Lord in all caps. That means behind that word in Hebrew is Yahweh. So when Jesus is called Lord, it's pointing back to not just Sir, not just Master, but all the way back to the God of the Old Testament. Jesus is fully and truly God. If you turn to the Gospel of John, we've been reading And John, go back to John 1. John makes this very clear from the outset of his book. We should be unified around the fact that Jesus is God. And so John 1.1, John's gospel starts out, In the beginning was the Word. The Word, capital W. The Logos. The Lord. The Son of God here. And the Word was with God. The Son of God was with God the Father. And the Word was God. How can the Word be with God and also be God? Because there's three persons in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Son of God has always existed. In the beginning. Meaning in the beginning of creation. Even before that. Jesus is eternal. 
the Word, the Logos, the Lord, the Kyrios. He is eternal. Go to John 1.14. John 1.14. And the Word became flesh. So the Son of God here became flesh, and He dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, the only Son of the Father, the only one that comes from the Father. And He was full of grace and truth. Matthew writes down a command of Jesus, the Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, we see that Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name, singular. The name, singular. And then he says, The name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Who's the Son? Jesus is the Son. But it's only one name, singular. Yeah, the name of the Trinity. Three persons, one God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Colossians 1.15, Paul says, He, talking of Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Not that he was the first one actually born, but that he's the first son. He is the son. He is the son of God. And he's the first to be resurrected from the dead. But if you want to see the Father, what did Jesus say in John 14? We read it today. Remember, the disciple says, show us the Father. And Jesus says, you've been with me for so long, you don't see the Father? He's not saying he's the Father. He's saying, if you want to see the Father, you go through the Son. Because the Son reveals the Father. And the Son is God. Jesus Christ is God. If we continued in Colossians uh, 1, 15 and continuing, it says, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. This is speaking of Jesus. This is speaking of Christ. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything that exists in the universe is being held together by Christ. Even when he was in the flesh, even when he was dying on the cross, every molecule in the universe is being held together by him because he's God. Of course, his deity wasn't dying on the cross. It was his humanity. But we'll come to that. Colossians 2.9 For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is God in the flesh. This isn't part God, just a little piece of God and a little piece of humanity jumbled together. No, the fullness of deity. He is fully God dwelling in the flesh. So Lord here means God. Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas, he really wasn't doubting like we think. He just wasn't there to see what the other disciples saw. And he had a hard time believing that the dead body that had been taken down from the cross had been resurrected. All the other disciples would have done the same thing as Thomas had they not been there to see him the first time. So Thomas couldn't believe it. And he says to Jesus, whenever Jesus says, feel me, you know, put, put your hands in my wounds. And Thomas looks at him and says, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. He's both Lord and God. He is God, so he can be called either. You know, when certain folks come knocking at your door and they want to share with you special literature, you know, they often come on the weekends. This is a great verse for them. You just tell them, open your translation. Don't go to John 1 because they've mistranslated it. Go to John 20, verse 28, and say, what does it say that Thomas said? My Lord and my God. And that's what it says in their translation as well. 
my Lord and my God. Well, that's Christ's deity. Also, he is fully and truly human. He has divinity. He has humanity. Christ is truly God, yet he's also truly human. He has two natures, deity and humanity. He is the God-man. God-man. In theology, that's called the hypostatic union. It's a very deep doctrine to study and look at in Scripture. At the core, it just means that when Jesus was on earth, and continuing all the way into eternity, that he has been, is, and forever will be one person. So he's one person. We don't have two Jesuses mixed together. He's one person consisting of a complete divine nature and a complete human nature. One person, two natures. That's the hypostatic union. A little bit of deep theology there. But it's important for everyone to know, as you grow in the Christian life, you need to understand more about Christ. It's not enough to say, well, he saved me. That is enough for heaven if you truly repent and believe. But had the thief gotten off the cross, he would have spent the rest of his life learning more about Jesus. Learning more about his Lord. Who doesn't want to learn more about their Lord? A complete divine nature. A complete human nature. One person. So the hypostatic union is is the union of those two natures in one person. There's a lot there we don't understand. There's a lot about the Trinity we don't understand. But we have to admit that he's one person with two natures. It means that Christ has a human body and a human soul. That's what being human means. You're a human. You have a body and soul. Christ is human. He has a body and soul. That's his humanity. And he also has his divinity. His divinity is not his human soul, but he's fully human and fully God. If you go to Philippians 2, Philippians 2, 6, Paul's talking about being humble like Christ. And in Philippians 2, 6 through 8, he says, Christ, who, although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. He emptied himself. It doesn't mean he got rid of his divinity. It means that he did not hold on to his appearance of divinity. He emptied himself. He got veiled so that you could not see his glory as he walked upon the earth. Because look what it says. He emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. God took on flesh. Being found in appearance as a man, so it's about appearance here, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he died. He was was truly human. How could God die? It's his humanity that dies. He is fully human. And he did not get rid of his divinity like the liberals say this verse means. No, it means that his appearance was veiled. His glory was not seen except the Mount of Transfiguration. The Mount of Transfiguration and probably when the soldiers come to arrest him and all fall down but certainly the Mount of Transfiguration. But he did not hold on to that. He did not say, I'm going to let my glory show all the time and not become a man. No, the Son of God came to do the Father's will. So in that sense, he emptied himself and took on flesh. And since then, he is one person and two natures. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest and things pertaining to God. How can he be a high priest if he's not fully human? It goes on to say, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He, he came to die for us, to satisfy the wrath of God. 
And a human can die, but God cannot die. So he took on flesh. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. He not only died on the cross in his humanity, but he was, he was tempted throughout his life. He was tempted by Satan, specifically in the desert, but tempted by sin throughout his life. Now, he never sinned. He could not have sinned. But he understands because he took on flesh, he can come to our aid when we are tempted. Well, that's the deity and humanity of Christ. That's the person. Who is he? He's fully God. He's fully human. But he also has a work, a great work that he did and continues to do and will do in the future. He died in the place of sinners. His work on the cross. His work of submitting himself to the Father to die on the cross for God's elect. It was vicarious. It was a vicarious death, meaning he took our place. If you're in Christ, he took your place. He stood in your place. You were condemned as a sinner, and he stood in your place. That's what vicarious means. And it was atoning because it was an actual sacrifice. It, it made forgiveness actual. If you believe in Christ, then he is your atonement. He lived a perfect life for you, and he died on the cross for you. Vicarious and atoning sacrifice. That was a great work. You wouldn't even be here if it wasn't for Jesus Christ's work on the cross for you. Also, his bodily resurrection. He said he would raise himself, and he said the Father would raise him. They're both participating in the Spirit as well in this event of the resurrection. But had Christ not been resurrected, what hope would we have? He wouldn't have been vindicated. His message would not have been true. He said he would be raised on the third day. He was raised on the third day. That's his work. And that has a huge impact on our own salvation. Also, he said that he would ascend, and he did ascend. The Bible says he would be exalted by the Father, and he was exalted by the Father. He now sits at the right hand of God. He sits right there, and he is ruling from God's throne. The Father's there, and the Son is there. Now, he's not ruling fully upon the earth in his kingdom yet. We believe that that's coming in the future. But he is ruling the universe there. And lastly, in his bodily coming, he's going to come to the earth, and rule in power and glory. That starts with the kingdom, it goes into eternity. You can't deny these things as a Christian. These unify us. The person and work of Christ. Which of these could we deny and still say that we're saved? Could we deny that he's God? Could we deny that he's human? No, because that undoes so much of his work, and that undoes the actual teaching of Scripture about who Christ is. Could we say that he didn't die in our place? Well, now we have no sacrifice. So we can't be unified around such error. We have to be unified around the truth. These are the things that, that Christ has done for us, and this is who he is. Now, secondly, the second thing that Paul mentions in Ephesians is the one faith. The one faith. And it's the gospel of salvation. Some will say this is your personal faith here. But I think, and many people think, that this is the objective faith. The body of doctrines that Christians believe. He's talking about doctrine here. He's not talking about your personal faith. It's the settled body of truth. The thing that's been passed down from Christ to his apostles to the church. The group of doctrines commonly confessed and believed in all the churches about Christ, about the gospel, about the Bible. Look over at Ephesians 4.13. Ephesians 4.13. This is how Paul uses the word faith. Just remember when you're reading the New Testament, it's not always your personal faith. Look at the context to see what he's doing with the word. Ephesians 4.13. He 
He says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith. They already have personal faith in Christ. This is the Christian faith. Until we all attain to that unity and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Then in six, chapter 6, verse 16, he talks about the shield of faith. Again, I don't, I don't think Paul is saying there, hold up your personal faith and it's so strong. Your personal faith is so strong that it will extinguish all the darts of the devil. No, it's the truth taught in Scripture. The doctrines of Scripture, that's what you use against the devil. And we'll come to that when we talk of the armor of God. This faith, the Christian faith, the doctrine taught in Scripture, Paul later will tell Timothy that it must be guarded by the church leaders. 1 Timothy 6.20, Oh, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, uh, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. They went astray from the faith, the Christian truth, these doctrines that Paul is touching on here. And they wandered off from that, and they went away from that, and they showed themselves to be false. They were false brethren. Second Timothy, he's about to die, Paul is, and he writes this last letter to Timothy once again. Second Timothy 1.14, Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure of, which has been entrusted to you. He's not saying guard your personal faith. He's saying that the treasure, the teaching that the apostles passed on to the elders like Timothy in the church. So I take Paul here to specifically mean the doctrines taught in Scripture, but since he's already touched on so many doctrines in this passage, he's, he touched on the one body, the one spirit, the one hope, here the one Lord as well. Then he's going to talk about baptism and the Father. So what's left? If we think about theology, if you studied systematic theology, what other doctrines is he combining into this, the faith, one faith? It's got to be man, sin, and salvation, the gospel. I take Paul as referring to here all the doctrines that attach specifically to the gospel, the good news. There's one message. There's one Christian faith that we proclaim. Whenever people heard about Paul in Acts, and they said, Hey, this is the one that used to persecute us, and now he's out there preaching the faith. He's preaching the gospel, the gospel message. We have one gospel message. We have one gospel of salvation. We have one teaching on who man is and what sin is and what salvation is. First, when we talk about the gospel, we have to understand who God is. So it also ties into some of these other things we're talking about. Who is God? If we have one faith, if we're united around the gospel, then we have to stop and say, who is God? Who is God? It's what churches skip. Used to, a lot of people grew up hearing about God. They grew up going to Sunday school. They grew up going to church. They learned about God. They knew God was holy. They knew they were sinners. And nowadays, people don't know that. They know it in their hearts, of course, but they haven't been taught that growing up. They haven't been taught that by society. And too many times, I think, we're, we're talking to the unbeliever and we just jump right into, Jesus will save you. From what? From who? We need to go back a step. Talk about who we are and how we're sinners. We need to go even further back and talk about God. Because God has created every person. We're supposed to give thanks to him. That's the first step of explaining the gospel of salvation, the, the one faith. We need to talk about God. And God has created every single person. And we should give thanks to him. We should glorify him. Every person from Adam and Eve all the way down to today, all the people ever created should glorify and give thanks to their creator. Romans 1. 
This means, though, that God requires perfect obedience. How do you glorify God? By doing what he says. How do you glorify God perfectly? By doing everything he says. And so we should obey every law. James 2.1, forever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point has become guilty of all. Matthew 5, Jesus says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. The first doctrine in the, in the gospel, in the one faith, is to explain to a person who God is. And it doesn't have to be a long dissertation on theology proper. Just explain to them that God created them and that we are to obey him because of that. But what about man? That's the second step that you need to explain to people when you're talking about the gospel. The one faith that Paul's mentioning here, I believe, is referring to the gospel. And to know the gospel, you need to know who we are, who God is and who we are. All mankind is unable to obey God. God expects perfection. Jesus told us, be perfect like your Father in heaven is perfect. But we are not able to do it because of sin. We are born in sin with a sin nature. And then we start acting out and living out our sinful desires as soon as we can. Before you could even remember anything in your life, you were already sinning. We've broken God's law so many times we can't even count them. Can you count how many sins you've committed? We've broken God's law so many times. This is why the Bible says there's none righteous, not even one. Not Adam, not Eve, No one is righteous except Christ, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're supposed to glorify God, and we all fall short. God expects perfect obedience, and we all fall short. So what happens when you disobey God? What's what's the punishment for the crime? Well, eternal penalty for sin. When you sin against an eternal God, the punishment is eternal. Sometimes people struggle with that. How could God do that? It's just one little sin. One little sin sends people to hell forever. It's one little sin against an eternal God. And it's not little in his sight. And no one commits just one little sin. But one would be enough. One would be enough. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin has wages. Wages get paid to the worker. The person who works sin gets his wages. And the wages are death, eternal death, eternal punishment. That's who we are. What can we do? What can we do? If you just stop there explaining to somebody who God is and who man is, you haven't explained the good news. Because that's bad news, isn't it? That's bad news. I mean, we should, we should love God, but the unbeliever doesn't love God for who he is. And certainly it's bad news to hear about our sin and our punishment. We've got to get to the good news, and that's Christ. Christ is the good news. What's the answer? What's the answer to our, our problem? Well, the Bible points to Christ. Because in ourselves, we can't work for our salvation. We can't earn it back. Not that we ever had it in the first place. But we can't earn our salvation. We can do nothing. Our works are filthy rags. We need someone who's perfect. We need someone who will die in our place because we are sinners. That's Christ. That's the one, this is the one faith that Paul's talking about that we have to agree upon. That Christ came to save sinners. That he's our Savior and Lord. That he paid the penalty for us. He came to the earth as both God and sinless man. He was born of a virgin. This is right out of our statement of faith. We just went over it last week. 
He was born of a virgin by the power of the Holy Spirit. He lived a perfectly righteous life. He performed many divine miracles showing that he indeed was sent from God. So he lived a perfect life. He was perfectly righteous where we couldn't be. Now that gets transferred to us because of what he did on the cross when we have faith in him. So he came, he lived a perfect life, he demonstrated God's love by dying on the cross for sinners. God does love his creation. He hates sin. He even hates the sinner, the Bible says, the person who continues in their sin. But it says here that God loved the world and sent his only son. And by dying on the cross, he paid sin's penalty for those who would believe. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then the, the great transaction that's described in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him, that's Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. If we're in Christ, Christ gets all of our penalty that we owed to God. He takes away all of our sin. We're fully forgiven. That gets us back to zero. It's not good enough. We get his righteousness in return. That's the best deal ever in the history of the world. He gets all our sin. We get all his righteousness. The righteousness that he proved and earned living a perfect life. And he's fully God, so he didn't have to earn or prove anything, but he did. He lived a perfect life. And that gets transferred to your account. As soon as you believe in Christ, that gets transferred to your account. Then he rose again from the grave. He's alive today. It shows us that we have hope of the resurrection. That's the good news. That's the good news of the gospel. We have to be unified around that. We we can't have different gospels in this church. Where this group over here believes that Jesus is just human. And this group over here believes that Jesus is just God. And all the bad heresies that have come from those two different views. No, we have to believe in the one Christ who was sent by the one Father to redeem sinful human beings. We are sinful. All of these doctrines, by the way, that I've mentioned have been denied by some professing Christians at some point. That's good news that we can have that, but how do we get it? How do we get the good news? You got to tell people what they are to do. Now we understand already in Ephesians that that only comes from the power of God. The apostles don't stop and go into a theological dissertation on repentance and faith when they're proclaiming the gospel or God's election or God's predestination. Predestination and election, those are for believers to grow in their faith. The unbeliever hears, repent and believe. Here's what Jesus said. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You must turn away from your sin. He didn't stop and say, well, let me give you an explanation of election, you unbelievers. No, he said, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself and follow me. Then there's much teaching and discipleship that will follow. Acts 17, Paul's preaching to pagans. He says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. He says, look, we're in the last age. We're in the last days. We're in the last age. Christ has come and we're not guaranteed anything in the future. In times past, God hasn't wiped out you pagans. There's a day coming when he will. Now is the time to repent. Also, we've got to tell people not just to repent, but to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. What good does it do to turn away from your sin and turn to something else other than Christ? We need to believe, trust, trust. Not just believe he existed. 
recently a, an unbeliever was telling me that they were a believer because they believed in God and were baptized at a young age. And since then, they've done nothing to express their faith, nothing to speak of Christ. They've not attended church, but they believe in God, and that's good enough. Just to say, I believe in Jesus, isn't what the Bible teaches. You've got to trust in him. That's the belief. Put your full life in his hands for salvation. Call him Lord. Paul says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, I believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You'll be saved from wrath. You'll be saved from judgment. Hell's a real place. People are going there every day, every day. Somebody is dying and going to hell. So we have to stop right here and just ask, have you done this? Have you repented of your sins? Have you trusted in Christ? Everyone here has to ask that. If you haven't done that, then why haven't you? Are you denying the obvious truth? You don't believe what the Bible says about eternal punishment? You don't believe you're a sinner? Have you trusted in Christ for your salvation? Have you turned from your sins fully? Said, I can't earn it, God, and I can't be perfect, but Christ already did it. He's already perfect. I turn to him as my Savior. That's the good news. That's the the full gospel and all the doctrines that attach to it. The Christian faith, which has its core in the gospel of salvation, that's essential. You can't even have a church without the gospel. We can't be unified with people who don't proclaim the gospel. There's cults out there that deny the deity of Christ. They deny the humanity of Christ. We're quick to say, that's wrong. We can't be unified with them. But then there are those who add works to salvation. They change the gospel. They preach another gospel like Galatians says. And sometimes we're really quick to join up with them. And we shouldn't be. We can join them in humanitarian causes. But we can join them in protecting the unborn. We can join them in different things that help in our country and in our state and in our city and in the world. But we cannot join them in a church. People who add works, Roman Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, those who say you have to do all of these things plus have faith to be saved. We can't be unified with them in the Christian faith. That is not the gospel that Christ has proclaimed. So those who depart from the true Christian faith are causing disunity. Those who say, yes, I'm saved by Christ alone, and then later say, but there's also works. That's disunity in anybody. They're departing from the true faith. They're departing from Christ's church, if they say that. You can't deny the gospel and be saved. The gospel is clear in Scripture. We have to believe in Christ. We have to trust in Him. If we deny those teachings, well, that's essentially unbelief. That's essentially saying there is no gospel. There is no good news. And then we just replace it with man's gospel. We can never do that. We're unified here around the gospel of Scripture. And when you go to another church someday, or you go visit your family and friends, or you have conversations with other believers, and these things come up, know the gospel. Know the gospel so you can spot error. And you can know, are you talking to a fellow brother, fellow sister? Or does this person need to hear the gospel again? Do they need to hear the gospel? The first thing I do in counseling, or any new member coming into the church, who am I talking to here? Is this a believer or an unbeliever? Do they need counseling, or do they need evangelism? Are we talking discipleship? Are we talking evangelism? That's important to assess. So we're unified around the person 
and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're unified around the gospel of salvation. And then lastly, we're unified around the symbol of new life. The symbol of new life is the one baptism that he mentions. The symbol of new life is baptism. It's an ordinance. It's what Christ gave us. He gave us two ordinances, the Lord's Supper, which we're about to take, and he gave us baptism, which we'll see in a few weeks, Lord willing. Baptism is an ordinance that Jesus gave. It's a symbol. It's an outward demonstration of what's already happened in here, what's already happened in the heart. It's an outward demonstration of faith in Christ, the faith and repentance I just talked about. How do you show that to others? How do you celebrate that? By going under the water and coming back out, by being immersed in water. Some think this is spirit baptism, but the spirit's already been discussed in verse 4. This one is closely associated with the Lord here in verse 5. This is water baptism. The word baptize or baptizo in Greek means to dip or immerse, to go fully under the water and come out. Not to be sprinkled. No, it means to go fully under, to be immersed, plunged, really drowned. This word is also used in other Greek writings of ancient times, to be drowned. Mark 1.5, it says, All the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem. This is John the Baptist. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. It's a confession. They're confessing their sins. Now that's John the Baptist's baptism. It's different than our Christian baptism. But it's getting us there. It's it's showing the Jews they need to repent and get ready for the Messiah who's coming. Now we go to Mark 1.10 and it speaks of Jesus. Now he had no sin. He didn't need to be baptized to confess his sin. But he said, do it, John, to fulfill all righteousness, to, to fulfill the Father's plan. And it says, coming up out of the water, which means he went down in the water. They didn't go down to the river so John the Baptist could sort of throw a bucket of water on everybody and baptize the whole crowd. Each one actually went down into the river and came up. And even Jesus went down, he came up, then the Spirit descended like a dove upon him as he's coming up out of the water. John 3.23, John was also baptizing in Aeneon near Salem because there was much water there and people were coming up and were being baptized. You need a lot of water to baptize a lot of people because you've got to take them down and bring them up. It's got to be deep enough. My favorite is probably Acts 8 where the Ethiopian eunuch is going along in the chariot and he's reading the gospel. He's, he's reading Isaiah 53. He's reading from Isaiah. And Philip, the evangelist, comes up. They have a discussion. He says, get in, show me. Show me what this means. And so Philip proclaims the gospel. From the Bible. And the the Ethiopian eunuch gets saved. Ethiopian says, what prevents me from being baptized? And, And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And Philip ordered the chariot to stop. And they both went down to the water. They went into the water. And Philip baptized him. They came up out of the water. And the Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. And the eunuch no longer saw him. But he went on his way rejoicing. It's it's about proclaiming what God has done for you. That's what baptism is. It's about rejoicing. It's why we all celebrate. We're all happy when we see baptisms and hear the testimonies that go along with them. This is the way baptism happened for the first 200 years of the church. Infant baptism is not introduced until after 200 AD. Even John Calvin, the great reformer who baptized babies and sprinkled, said that this word, baptism, is evident that it means to immerse. It means to plunge. It means to go down into the water. 
It's not just a bath. It's not just a swim. It signifies something. It's a symbol, not a magical symbol. It doesn't actually do anything, but it symbolizes something that's already been done. It associates us with the Trinity. That's the first thing that it symbolizes. We're associated now with the triune God of Scripture. We've confessed before all people or all that are listening that we are with the God of the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Matthew 28, I already read to you the name, singular, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's basically saying, are you going to choose Christ or are you going to choose the world? Baptism says, I choose Christ. God's already worked in my heart. Now I'm not scared to go public with it. I'm going public. Maybe my family doesn't want me to be a Christian. Maybe they're okay me talking some Christianese, some Christian language from the Bible. But when I go public with my baptism, that's drawing a line in the sand. I'm now saying I am a Christian. It also unites us. It unites us into the church as a member. We want to see baptized people with one baptism. Paul says one baptism here come into the church. It's like a team jersey. It says I'm a Christian and I'm going to join with these other people on the team. I was telling the new members the other day, it would be like if, if Joey, our elder, got hired by a professional basketball team. And he, he got offered millions of dollars to play. It's kind of funny to them and funny to Joey. Uh, he is faster than me, I'll say that. Um, he's proven that. If they paid him millions of dollars, but he refused to put on the jersey, I'm not going to wear it. Christ is going to save you? And someone refuses to proclaim him publicly in baptism? It was unknown in Scripture. It was unknown. Thirdly, it also indicates that we are united with Christ in his death. What is the one baptism? We're associating ourselves with the triune God. We're being initiated into the local church. And it says we are united with Christ. It says we are in a union with Christ in his death and in his resurrection. Go with me to Romans 6. This will be the last one that we look at here, Romans 6. When we do baptisms here, I often either read this or cite it or just paraphrase it. Romans 6, 2. Paul's making a case about sanctification and he's trying to, to teach them. He wants them to look back to something that's already happened. So he uses an illustration here of something that's actually happened to them. So starting in, in Romans 6, 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ have been baptized into his death. Speaking of water baptism, therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his flesh, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. You're symbolizing that you're in Christ. You go down into the water, that symbolizes your old self dying. Just like Christ died on the cross. You're coming up out of the water, symbols newness to life, just like Christ was resurrected. It's an analogy. It's a symbol. It's, it points to who we are. We're something new. The old person's been dead. He's washed away. The old self, he's gone. The new self in Christ is here. So baptism symbolizes that. Well, we can't be united with those who deny that fact, that baptism is a public proclamation of Jesus Christ and that we're united with him. If somebody comes and says, you know, baptism, it's not just a symbol, it's required for salvation. 
It earns your salvation. There are many who teach that. Baptize the baby young. That way, if they die sometime later, they will now be in heaven because of their baptism. Roman Catholics, many Lutherans, many denominations like the Church of Christ believe that baptism earns you something with God, that it takes part in your justification, in your salvation. It's called baptismal regeneration. We can't be united with those kinds of heresies. Baptism doesn't earn us anything. It's a symbol to all the members of this church, all the people who are gathered here as we get baptized and confess our faith with Christ. Well, these are the things that unify us. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. We are together with Christ. If we believe these things, we're all together. We're unified. And we shouldn't be separating and splitting from the body because Paul says these things unite us. These things unite us. If you're not in Christ here today, if you say, that's nice, preacher. That's some good biblical teaching. But I'm not part of this body. I'm not part of the body of Christ. I'm not even part of Christ. Then I point you back to what we just looked at. Repentance and faith in Christ. You want to be part of the body of Christ. The true body of Christ is what's going to heaven someday. All those people in the body of Christ. Some are already there. You want to be part of the body of Christ. That is the good news of Scripture. Lord, I do pray that we would be edified by this teaching, that we would not think we know all things, but we would continue to learn from Scripture. Help us, Lord. Help us to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. He is our Lord. He is our Lord. Help us to celebrate every baptism that we have here. And Lord, help us to keep the faith. Help us to keep the doctrines of the gospel. Let us never stray. We want to be unified here. We want to be one church proclaiming these truths. We pray that you would hold us fast. In Christ's name, amen.